the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching Richard Linklater's 2014 coming-of-age drama, Boyhood. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So, if you've not already seen Boyhood, go away and watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. When writing these introductions, I try to avoid the obvious where possible. For instance, if you listen to our Cool Hand Luke episode, I did my best to avoid talking about eggs. But the thing about Boyhood is that it was filmed with the same cast over 12 years. There's no getting around it. You actually get to see people grow old. Now here on Spoiler, we know just how good wigs and makeup can be, having our own, sort of, Oscar-winning wig maker on board. But actual years of life are better than any artificial artistry. And as we've seen in the Harry Potter franchise, this is particularly true with young actors. Mom, she's speaking that stupid language again. Samantha. I was speaking perfectly clear English, Mother. You know, he's a little slow in the head. He did officially flunk first grade. Sit your butt down. Yes, sir, Mother, sir. Richard Linklater is the director of my favorite film of all time, School of Rock. And with Boyhood, he seems to have made a film over 12 years, quite simply, about life. However, as with life, it's really not that simple. You know what I'm realizing? My life is just going to go like that. This series of milestones. Getting married, having kids, getting divorced, getting divorced again, getting my master's degree, finally getting the job I wanted, sending you off to college. You know what's next? It's my funeral! Starting in 2002, Boyhood began filming without a complete script. Link later worked on that each year, using input from the main actors who drew upon their real-life experiences. He couldn't even sign the cast up to a contract due to a law that does not allow that to happen for more than seven years. We hear all the time about how the financiers behind the movie industry are only after one thing, more finance. But it must be said that IFC Productions played a blinder here and the gamble paid off. Boyhood won the BAFTA and Patricia Arquette won the Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. And with a good distribution, this independent film made more than a comfortable return. Critical acclaim was seemingly not enough for this film. Some notable directors adored it. Christopher Nolan was a fan, as was Mike Lee, who named it as the definitive independent film. Do you like it? Yeah. It's good, right? And we've come to love including Roger Ebert's opinions in such matters. And here's why. Time is what makes the film cohere even when particular scenes, images or performances seem clunky or undernourished. Fixating on imperfections while discussing boyhood would be as petty as criticising the sculpting of individual stones in a cathedral. Now Lincoln Cathedral recently won a Twitter poll as the UK's favourite. I can guarantee that it looks glorious from a distance or up close where you can see those imperfections on those individual stones and like in this film the beauty and the character is in those bruises and the knocks it gets along the way because that is life looks like you use the bumpers you don't want the bumpers life doesn't give you bumpers now later in the show we'll be taking a closer look at the world of american independent cinema 
But first, joining me here to discuss boyhood are a boy that, like me, has had an email read out on Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle Port's brilliant podcast, Adrift. <laughs> it's Andy Goulding. Hello. And a hood that hasn't yet had an email read out on Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle Port's <laughs> brilliant podcast, Adrift. It's Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I wrote that three times there. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Now, Rachel, um, here's the way this episode's going to go, okay? Uh, what we're going to do, we, we, we aim naturally for about an hour. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter, it doesn't matter. So if we take an hour as a guide, we're going to spend around about 50 minutes wondering why on earth they used yellow by Coldplay to open this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then 10 minutes just on the rest of the plot, the characterization, okay. everything else. Um I know, I know. I'm starting on a complete, complete tangent, but this—I mean, really, this, this is a mute point for me, and I should be asking you two what you think of it because you're the reviewers and I'm the host of the program. But here it is, right? When Coldplay first came out, they came out with a song called Shiver, right, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. After that, very downhill. I saw them at Glastonbury when they played their first Glastonbury. They weren't very good right okay and I think they would probably look back now and tell you on that and then I went into this big whole thing oh everyone likes them now and all this kind of thing and then they wear these silly uniforms which I can't connect with on stage however I do recognise that in songs like Fix You they've you know created really really you know a, a work of art and something that really connects with a huge amount of people and actually Recently, I mean, the past couple of years I maybe I, th- I saw them perform uh, I didn't see them perform I watched it on the telly and I kind of got it with the way they connect to an audience, right? I got it. I understand why so many people turn up and, you know, they have all those luminous bands and all this kind of thing. I get that. But this was completely the wrong song to open this film. (laughs) 50 minutes, come on. We're going 50 minutes on this one. I'm not going to talk about one song that really didn't say anything about the entire film. (laughs) Well, there I we think, go. All right, you've I agreed with me, Andy. You agree, right? Uh, I, have, I have a note on this. <laughs> oh, go on. And I'll, I'll get, I'll get to it later, though. We'll get to it organically. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Teasing. Mm. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry that needed to be said because I, it's funny because in, I don't know if we talked about this in uh, Donnie Darko, the editors, not the uh, the director's, uh, director's cut. cut, the director's cut. He took out um, one of the greatest songs of oh, all time. He did. Uh, which is Echo and the Bunnymen, yeah. yeah. and uh, replaced it with um, Never Tear Us Apart by uh, In Excess, which I, 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 I mean, I don't mind. I quite like that song, but you'd never replace one for the other. Um, so given that, I need to get over that now. <laughs> you really do. I know, I know. I, I can't remember. There's so much more to this. <laughs> I, I can't remember. I know, I know, I know. I can't remember being so animated by it because <laughs> the rest of it, all right, right, all right, all right, let's get on to it, the rest of it. Andy, what do you reckon? <laughs> wow. Um, well, you never get that with Parky, do you? <laughs> what do you reckon? Have a pen. Well, I'll start off by saying that I absolutely love Richard Linklater. He's one of my favourite directors. I think he's, he's got just an amazing body of work. Uh, but the first time I, I sat down to watch this, I was completely underwhelmed by it. Uh, I didn't get it at all. I, I kind of liked bits of it, but it didn't hit with me. Uh, I realise now that I did it completely wrong. Uh, it was the yellow thing, right? It was the cold paper. I know, I know. I'm, I'm the same. Well, what it was, what it was for me is the first time I watched this, it was quite a busy time in my life, and I had a lot going on. But I was, I was still trying to fit in films frantically. Whenever the Oscar films were announced, I always think, oh, I want to see them all. And so I got hold of a, a copy of of Boyhood, and I just tried to squeeze it in, and. It's not a film you can do that with, I don't think. And so I, I could just kind of watched it feeling sort of harried, not settling into it. And as a result, I didn't really get it. Now, this time round, I 
had a week off work. Uh, I had a four pack of beer. <laughs> I sat down, I relaxed, I melted into the chair and I completely immersed myself in this film rather than just let it wash over me. And you need to do that. It's a film that you need to live in a little bit because it, it is life. And this time I really, really got it. Uh, and I think it's not only a really incisive and astute slice of life, but it's also a really valuable document of a time period which I still don't feel I've had enough distance from to categorise in my head. Uh, I think that the time period it covers is kind of my wilderness years. I just had I'd left school and I was sort of drifting from job to job. I didn't have any direction. And boyhood's able to clarify that era really well without falling into the nostalgia traps that retrospective pieces tend to do because it presents material shot at the time that was being represented so everything that we see even if we remember it's not being presented as lazy nostalgia it's being presented as here's what's going on at the time and this is why we open with yellow uh now i'll say up front that i'm i'm not a big coldplay fan uh, i think some of that stuff is all right but Yellow is probably in my top ten worst songs of all time. I can't stand it. And when it started off, I thought, oh, they've got off on the wrong foot for me here. But I think the music choices are perfect because they're not chosen just by what the director likes or thinks will work without seeing. They're chosen by the era and they're representative of that era. And at that time... Yellow was all over the place. You heard it everywhere. And so it instantly brings to mind that period. Not only that, but it's a very sort of... It has an almost nursery rhyme simplicity to its lyrics. Look at the stars, see how they shine for you. They were all yellow. And so starting that, starting it off with a song that, that taps into that, which has just like flags up a pri- the basic primary colour right off the bat against the the very basic early years of a boy's life it it kind of reflects that for me and as we go along maybe the songs that we hear get a little more complex so for me that that was why that was in there and in the end i ended up thinking that was a really fantastic way to start the film see i'm, I'm listening I, you know i respect you a lot Andy. I'm, listening, <laughs> I'm listening listening to what you say i'm just thinking i know and here's the thing you're exactly right because i'm thinking i'm absolutely thinking they should have gone with doves for this right for that for them for the same time <laughs> doves had their debut album out lost yeah. souls knocks that other one out of the park right but i think you're probably right on mm, damn it <laughs> right i'm gonna go into assault now rachel what, <laughs> what? <laughs> um okay so as i said in the introduction rachel 12 years 12 years can you can you get around that while while watching this or is it always like linking around in the back of your head did you know that before you you must have known that yeah. before you started watching it right I've seen new before I started watching it and it's strange I only watched it yesterday and um, I said to Andy earlier I'm still ruminating I'm still digesting it and thinking about it and it's lingering and I'm still working it out and it's still it's like something that just kind of sits over you and then over time it just kind of sinks into your pores a bit and then you think more and more about it and because it is life and I can I can feel quite melancholy about it I can get it depends I suppose how you watch it if you watch it in a particularly melancholic state it's going to make you worse if you watch it in a quite happy state it'll probably make you feel better it's really quite astonishing and I think when you first start watching it and you think there's that little boy and they are oh, right okay it's quite shallow but oh this is going on a bit and oh he's growing up a bit and then and then suddenly he's quite a bit older and you go oh my god that's actually the same kid isn't it and there's a little bit of me just remembering and going that's the same boy and wow 
And every now and then it just, I, I came out of it slightly because of the wonder of it. Mm-hmm. And going, that's quite amazing. Because it's not just him. Obviously, it's the other actors too. And I hadn't, I knew the boy was getting 12 years older, but a bit of me didn't think the other actors would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> it was really weird how I, how I sort of, I've just, well, I've never seen anything quite like it. And so it took a while to sink in. And I would like to watch it again. I do think it's one of those films that's yeah. going to take some repeated viewing. Because I do feel like I've almost skimmed the surface of it. And it's still sitting with me at the moment and still sort of getting into my paws. But I, I do think it's an astonishing piece of cinema. Let's talk about Ella Coltrane. Um, <sighs> wow. I don't know. I don't know how. I haven't really read up on how they went about casting him, but he's perfect, isn't he? Oh, right, just, right just from amazing. the. I mean, what what actually makes up the cover of the film? You know, just from that first opening shot to the last opening shot, just this easygoing nature about him. Because um, I mean, it could it all have it could all have gone a bit awry, couldn't it? Yeah. There, there are so many ways in in which a, a film over that period of time could go awry. Yeah. It, it, it's it's good that he, <laughs> it's good that he carried on being. Yeah. Uh, a good actor because I'm not sure that's always the case is it no it certainly isn't and I, I must admit I did sort of think because I didn't know if his performance had been strong or not because there was no acting plaudits for him which is weird actually because mm. I mm. think he deserved some but I thought oh is he going to be a bit you know fair dues to Daniel Radcliffe now he's a lot better but is he going to be a bit Daniel Radcliffe but so they took a hell of a risk but I heard that he'd already done a bit of theatre and a bit of film before he was cast he was only six years old obviously he'd already watched Waking Life and and loved it and loved the mm. philosophy of it. This was a bright kid. This isn't your normal common or garden kid. This is yeah. somebody that understands that he's got some depth in him and you can see that in his eyes. And as he got older, and he he became very Ethan Hawke, I thought. He, he, <laughs> obviously, he's hanging around with these people quite a bit. And he has this lovely, lazy way about him that's so totally natural and so authentic. And I know that Richard Linklater said he, he took elements of Ella's own life so, you know, he said he wouldn't make him do something that wasn't at all like him. Mm-hmm. So there was an element of natural about it. But I just thought his performance was rather exceptional. And I am surprised that there were no plaudits for him because that's a hell of a commitment. And he never backed down on it and he never he never threw in anything that was weak. Mm. When he went through his entire puberty, you think he'd have, he'd have gone, right, right, you need to pay me five million then because I am this guy. <laughs> you know, but he didn't. And... That is really quite special. They were very lucky. Yeah. Because I think, is it Lorelai? Lorelai. Um, She asked at one point for her dad to kill her off. (laughs) Um, Because she didn't want to be in anymore. And I can totally see that that would be the case. I think we're very lucky that none of the other cast members got sick. Um, you know, you know. I'm, I know Patricia Arquette was told not to have plastic surgery or anything <laughs> specifically. So there's so many things that could have gone wrong, or people could have died, or whatever. And mm. but they didn't. And that, I think that's another thing that makes it so exceptional, and probably it will probably remain unique for a long time. Yeah, it's amazing to me because if I have a big project that I'm excited about going on but it's unfinished. It's always there in the back of my mind. I don't think I could have held that for 12 years. I would have felt uncomfortable <laughs> the whole time. So yeah. it's amazing. It is. I mean, I'm pre- I was pretty confident coming into the studio today that I, I think we'd all really like it. Um, if you look um, out in, into the, the general public, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is either 10 out of 10 or 1 out of 10. You know, people, you know, the pe- people 
just don't connect with this film sometimes because they don't think it's about anything. But it's about everything. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this, this is it, and it does it so effortlessly, brilliantly. So uh, you mentioned the yeah, pr- Patricia Arquette. Yes, Patricia Arquette. I'm sure we'll get back to Patricia Arquette. I particularly really, really want to talk about Ethan Hawke. Who knew? I knew. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you knew. Uh, I, I knew. Love I didn't. Love Ethan Hawke. Yeah. yeah, you're a big fan too. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what would, what would I, I mean? I I, I, like, I think he's a likable character. What what would you have? What would I have seen him in before that, that I'm missing? That I'm forgetting? There's a lot of, Link, of Richard Linklater yeah. films before Sunrise, before Sunset. Um, well, in School of Rock, though, was he? <laughs> <laughs> no, surprisingly, actually, I'm surprised he wasn't. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah. Uh, he's in Training Day, which I've never seen, no, but he either. was Oscar nominated for that. Captain mm, yeah, Great Expectations, Dead Hamlet. Poet Society, Hamlet. Yeah, it was good Hamlet actually. Mm. No, he's, he's very versatile. Yeah. Well, for me, yeah. I mean, he's an absolute brilliant. You know, mm. no, I was a surprise. No, you see, now I feel stupid. <laughs> <laughs> surprise to you. That's fine. I think. I think. <laughs> I think. And it is the thing. I think it's probably because, uh, as well as that, I related to the character. You know, yeah. you, you relate to this person who's obviously. I wouldn't say made some mistakes. He's just been a young man, and he's yeah. while he was a young man, and that's I can identify just about with that. I remember it. Um, but also, it's, it's just that that. The oversimplicity, I suppose, of uh, uh, of giving up that GTO car to get a, a family people carrier. I remember that. <laughs> I, used, I used to drive a Triumph Spitfire, you know. Ooh. I know. I know. And then, uh, then you end up with uh, a utility vehicle with seven seats. Seven seats. <laughs> <sighs> and then once people know you have that, you end up being the designated driver. Anyway, that's why, oh, man, we've gone one. But I really, I, you know, that, that, that for me was something that I really connected to and it's I think it's it's quite simple but I think they got it across really well you know yeah no Definitely. I totally agree yeah I think he, he, he feels like a all his his good sides and his flaws are all there to see aren't they I think he catches like the idea of a man caught between his responsibility and this kind of errant childishness that's still alive in him and some of the scenes uh, I was really impressed with him how he dealt with things like there's this particular scene where uh, where his son asks him about magic and whether elves exist in yeah, the real world. Exactly, exactly. And the answer he gives about how, well, no elves don't exist, but if if I described a whale to you and you never heard of it before, and I said that this creature with a heart so big he could crawl through its arteries, it's just a, a brilliant, brilliant answer to give to a kid to show them that, yes, magic in one form doesn't exist in the world, but it does in all these other ways. And it's a great way to keep a, a, a kid's mind open I felt that as his son grew up and he became sort of one of the boys his advice maybe started to get a little bit worse there's a scene towards the end where he talks to him about how women are never satisfied and always looking to trade up and it's a real kind of it's just like a thing that that men say like when mm-hmm. they're all having a beer and it's a, a really horrible piece of advice and the, but it was authentic wasn't it yeah yeah I'm not saying, saying that, I'm not saying that as a criticism yeah. of the film I'm yeah. saying that as a uh, as a brilliant depiction of the the different sides of that character, I mean he's 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 really liberal and he's keen to uh, bring out that side in his kids, but he's he's f- too forceful with it. He mm. says, "Who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for? Who I tell you, you're going to not like this baseball team because I tell you, he's trying to mould them too much in his image rather than than make them keep an open mind." And in his greatest moments, like the whale conversation, he does some really brilliant parenting. And in, in others, he's, you can see the childishness. I mean, he's, he's a young man himself. He had kids very young. And, and you can see as he grows up throughout the film. I mean, he, he 
grows up as much as anyone thinks, doesn't he? And yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that, there's that wonderful bit at the end where he offers money and he's got nothing in his wallet, and that shows he's still got that, yeah. that side to him. Yeah, but also the scene where he pulls the car over, where you know it's like if you pick your kids up from school and you say well, hours today, and they both, both my mind always say fine fine all right actually and then what you actually learn is that later on through the day and the 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 conversations you have around maybe the dinner table or actually just as you're in the kitchen or just as you're trying to do something else usually then you find out about what really happened throughout the day and that was it you know and he pulled the car over the side of the road saying look i want you to talk to me always talk to me but they both answered back and sort of said well well, no that's not really how it goes you know and and what are you doing yeah you you know you tell us and he he goes oh yeah that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) and carries on and that's that's really good and really you know it's just exactly i can see myself doing that mm. yeah, alright you got a point let's go. <laughs> let's go you know you sort of go from being this authoritarian figure to trying to be a bit more diplomatic about things and uh, yeah that's, that's no no bad way to be but then you know sometimes, sometimes I make notes while writing these uh, the, these scripts out here and again I'm just going to throw I'm going to throw this out there and you know see what you make of it I've written drunk stepfathers and the growth of Patricia Arquette <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a title for a book, isn't it? <laughs> no, I must admit, by the time the second stepfather turned into a drunk, I was like, "Oh, really? Another one? Mm. Can we change the trope slightly?" Yeah, that that didn't that did sort of, sort of give me a little bit of a uh, really. It, I didn't like the sort of stereotype kind of. Oh, there's another one. She's obviously somebody that picks you know men like that, and I, I wasn't too keen on that, but. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why he he chose for a second husband to be another drunk. Why mm. it's not just about alcohol, alcohol. There can be other reasons why people divorce. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Yeah. So um, I'd like to have seen a different reason, mm. um, not just the same again. I mean, it, I don't. I think it sort of belittled Patricia Arquette's character a little. I mean, she, this is a, an educated woman, somebody that thinks very deeply about things, somebody who's come through a lot of stuff, who is strong enough to get her children out of a, you know, a previous um, abusive um, marriage, and she's got herself embroiled in another. And I know that happens, but you know, I'd like to think that she's strong enough not to fall into it again. So yeah. it sort of it it belittled her, which was a bit frustrating because she was one of the sort of stronger women in in the film. Um, whereas Ethan Hawke just seemed to somehow make it work, and I'm like, oh, all right, he's okay. So you know, he can <laughs> yeah, yeah. he can say vastly inappropriate things to his children and swear and make all these comments, and then somehow he's he's ended up doing okay. And I'm pleased for him, but can we just have a little bit of niceness for the mum? <laughs> so, <laughs> Although yeah. the family that that he ends up with, will give a what a 15 year old boy a, a shotgun, shotgun yeah, no, on a holy bible, obviously. I mean, define okay. <laughs> Yeah, he's okay with his wife. I'm not sure about her yeah. folks, but yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I like those scenes when they were because everyone was quite tolerant, weren't they? You know, the the, the, yeah. the kids were all you know. Yeah. Like, okay, I know this isn't for me, but you know, <laughs> I'm not really going with it. But they seemed, you know, they seemed to go yeah. along with things. And he was very grown up. Yeah, very I did quite mature. Like, like the idea of a Bible with Jesus's words in red as well. Yeah, I, I, I quite like to to no. flip through and just read what, what he said <laughs> so we're all about the characters at one point particularly early on I think it, I, there was a point I felt where it was more about a family or at some point you could have even called this girlhood because the Samantha character I thought yeah. was, was, was was so good Yeah. and then it, then actually I did feel there was a point and I can't it's a camping trip yeah that's when it went boyhood yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I, I thought the Samantha character was fantastic yeah so did I really just subtle and cool it's a big risk as well, isn't it? Casting a family member because yeah. people have been seriously criticised for it. Francis Ford Coppola, for mm. one. Uh, 
but oh, she was she was so the right choice, wasn't she? She, really she was, was so good. So over the twelve years, I don't know if we mentioned about the twelve year thing or not. <laughs> over <laughs> the twelve years, did, did you ever? It was at some point. Did you ever feel like, oh, I'd like to have seen a bit more of that? You know, when it, it jumps and it jumps to another scene, you think, oh, damn it, I, I, I wanted more of that that particular yeah, year. A couple of times actually, and there was a few times where I was thinking, right, move on. <laughs> yeah. But that's life, right? Because yeah. I remember thinking about halfway through, and I was getting just a little little bit fatigued, but just a little bit. Right. Okay. This has been going on for a while, and. I don't like that when I'm watching a film and I start to feel I start to clock watch. Yeah. I didn't actually look at my watch, but I had that sensation of I wonder how much longer. That always sort of sends a little alarm bell off. But that's also life. It's not always going to have things mm. going on. Sometimes it is going to be a bit of a quiet year. And so actually that was fine. And as a complete thing, this is why you shouldn't watch it in bits or not properly engage with it. You have to watch it from beginning to end, completely immerse yourself because that is life. And so actually I completely forgave it. It's slightly slower bits and then it's bits where it jumped on because that's life. Yeah. And so that's fine. Yeah, I mean quite quite unusually for me I did I did make the time to watch this uh, as a whole, you know. I was because, going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, no 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 because I I watched a lot of what we do here on uh, bits of phone and this that and the mm. other and grab the time when I can and um no no this was uh, right okay get clear clear everyone out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> and just you know right, I need, I I'm, I'm watching this now. You're right. It does. It does pay pay dividends for that. I mean, I had wondered if if it had been presented as like a mini series or something, would it have been as acclaimed? And I don't think it would because part of it is is that it's that chunk of life and mm-hmm. it takes so long to watch, and you do get one hit of twelve years in one go, and that's yeah. important, isn't it? Definitely. So back in 2015, independent films dominated the Oscars with Whiplash, Birdman, Grand Budapest Hotel and Boyhood receiving 29 nominations and 12 wins between them. But what exactly is an independent film? Andy is a huge fan of American indie cinema and attempts to explain. I've always loved films. As a square-eyed prepubescent, I would devour Disney and chuckle along to the ukulele-wielding comic antics of George Formby. As adolescence came knocking, I became enamoured of the 80s blockbusters readily available to rent at the local newsagents. I thrilled to Indiana Jones' last-minute hat grab and Marty McFly's hoverboard acrobatics. But as height and body hair ratio increased, so did the amount of hormones being poured out by my entertainment-hungry brain and I began to search for something as emotionally stimulating as it was visually appealing. It was this desire that brought me to American independent cinema, a world that redefined the way I look at films. I was already a huge fan of indie music. What a revelation to discover there was such a thing as indie cinema as well. The term independent cinema is a notoriously difficult one to define. In 1966, critic Andrew Saris wrote, The independent cinema is in many respects a fiction of the journalist's imagination. What makes a film independent? And independent of what? Hollywood? Commercialism? Plot? Production values? Entertainment? In short, how much independence can we bear? Saris's tongue-in-cheek laundry list touches on some of the major assumptions about indie films, but fans, critics and practitioners of the medium have long been locked in fierce debate over what truly constitutes cinematic independence. John Jost, a filmmaker at one of the extremes of indie cinema, has maintained a fervently independent career for decades while being vocally critical of an independent sector he sees as too susceptible to Hollywood's influence. But producer John Pearson, who worked on some of the biggest indie hits of the 90s, including Clerks and The Blair Witch Project, 
has suggested that churning out no-budget oddities that very few people will see is a pointless endeavour, and to avoid commercial considerations completely is to condemn oneself to ineffectual obscurity. In keeping with indie cinema's elusiveness, both men have a point. There are few things more depressing than a potentially great film scuppered by a compromised vision, and yet the few John Joss films I've managed to see, I did so by contacting the director himself and arranging to send money to a third party in London in order to obtain three homemade discs and clear plastic slipcases several months later. For practically any definition of American indie cinema you care to float, there are exceptions to derail your attempts at categorisation. Perhaps the most obvious rule many would cite first is that indie films should be made with no direct influence or financial backing from Hollywood, but few would argue against the inclusion of Paul Thomas Anderson among the canon of indie directors, yet he has never directed a feature outside of the studio system, while landmark indies like Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing or Spike Jones's Being John Malkovich were backed by studio dollars. Perhaps most significantly, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies and Videotape, the film credited with kicking off the indie cinema renaissance of the 90s, received the bulk of its $1.2 million budget from the video division of Columbia Pictures. Maybe the key detail here is the comparatively small figure of $1.2 million, a sum which typifies the tiny budgets associated with indie cinema, and yet it probably sounded princely to Robert Rodriguez, whose 1992 debut El Mariachi was made for $7,000, much of which Rodriguez scraped together by participating in experimental clinical drug testing. Both films have been called low-budget, but the gulf between those two figures show what a relative term that is. Another mistaken assumption about indie cinema is that it is a modern phenomenon. The indie boom of the 90s, on which Soderbergh's debut lit the touch paper, may have significantly increased the number of suddenly fashionable independent creations, but the urge to tell visual stories without outside interference and despite lack of means is almost as old as the medium of cinema itself. African-American filmmaker Oscar Michaud is often considered the first indie director, as well as a pioneer of race cinema. In response to D.W. Griffith's racist epic Birth of a Nation, Michaud made the rebuttal Within Our Gates, which featured positive depictions of black characters, in contrast with Griffith's disgraceful work in which the Ku Klux Klan feature as the heroes of the piece. Though Michaud's films are often seen as melodramatic and slapdash, his dogged determination to fight back against an unenlightened industry by raising funds door to door and lugging piles of film cams from theatre to theatre himself has proved an inspiring example for any number of mavericks who followed in his wake. In 1954, with McCarthyism in full force, Herbert J. Biberman banded together with a group of blacklisted filmmakers and Mexican-American miners to make the astonishing Salt of the Earth, a politically progressive film about a miners' strike. Miner wants to get his brothers out in one piece. You work alone, savvy? You can't handle a job, I'll find someone who can. Who, a scab? An American. Biberman was one of the Hollywood Ten, a group of writers and directors who had refused to testify before the House and American Activities Committee and who had spent time in jail as a result. Salt of the Earth, then, constitutes an incredibly bold act of defiance and it suffered a difficult production process and politically motivated critical drubbing as a result. It has latterly been hailed as a masterpiece of indie filmmaking and an inspiration to similarly progressive independent movements like the new queer cinema that helped establish directors such as Todd Haynes and Gus Van Sant. I love you, but 
Another characteristic associated with indie cinema is the use of unknown and often non-professional actors. In many cases, this would be a financial necessity, but it can also be an aesthetic one. Richard Linklater's innovative debut Slacker, for instance, follows 24 hours in the lives of a group of students, college dropouts and eccentric outsiders who could all be broadly defined by the titular umbrella term. Linklater's camera begins by following one character, but then splinters off to follow someone who passes them on the street or switches allegiances during a conversation and leaves with a different participant. The viewpoint passes through dozens of different inhabitants of Austin, Texas, never spending more than a few minutes with them, just enough time to share their personal philosophies or political bugbears. Slacker's bold concept could only work with a series of unknown faces, and Linklater ensured the timelessness of the film by casting mostly non-professionals, real Austin residents, filmmaker friends and obscure musicians. But indie cinema isn't devoid of famous faces by any means. Many of our most brilliant character actors forged their reputations in independent productions, including Catherine Keener, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Parker Posey. Steve Buscemi is practically synonymous with indie cinema, his distinctive face, eccentric style and broad range making him the perfect go-to guy for strapped directors. Likewise, the hip independent scene can be an attractive proposition for mainstream actors who want to rediscover their prestige. Harvey Keitel may have been practically unknown when he starred in Martin Scorsese's own classic indie film Mean Streets, but he certainly wasn't by the time he took a role in Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. One recurring aspect of indie cinema that particularly appeals to me is its ability to make a virtue out of an obstacle. Independent directors often paint on smaller canvases, setting their scenarios in confined spaces and focusing on character, dialogue and the drama of everyday life, rather than visual flourishes and melodramatic gestures. Sidney Lumet's Hollywood classic Twelve Angry Men had already proved that changes of scenery aren't necessary to create gripping entertainment. But the scenario in that film is life or death, whereas indie films often tend to revel in the mundane and small details of human interaction. The early films of Jim Jarmusch, one of my favourite directors of all time, often use confined spaces to great effect. The first and best act of his seminal Stranger Than Paradise takes place across ten days in a small apartment as two mismatched characters learn to tolerate each other. Why is it called TV dinner? Um, I'm supposed to eat while you watch TV. Where does that meat come from? It doesn't even look like meat. Even stop bugging me, will you? You know, this is where we eat in America. I got my meat, I got my potatoes, I got my vegetables, I got my dessert, and I don't even have to wash the dishes. After this, Jarmusch experimented with even smaller spaces, including a prison cell in Down By Law and hotel rooms in Mystery Train. But perhaps his boldest notion was to set the incredible night on Earth in five different taxes across various time zones on the same night. What's your name, man? Helmut Krokenberger. Helmut? That's your name? Yeah. Because <laughs> in English, a helmet would be like, you know, like something you wear on your head, you know? You know, a, a helmet. <laughs> in this wonderful film, we travel perhaps further than in any other indie film. But Jarmusch stays focused on what's going on in the cramped camps rather than the scenery around them. So, what's your name? Yo-Yo. Les? Yo-Yo. It's my name. It's okay, name. Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo. It's, uh, that's a speed toy for kids. It ain't got nothing to do with that. It's my name. Yo-Yo. It's a toy for kids. Yo-Yo. Your name, Yo-Yo. 
In all Jarmusch's films, the emotional changes the characters undergo are minuscule, but they feel entirely earned. We see every step of each tiny transformation, as opposed to employing time-saving Road to Damascus moments, or montages in which a too-literal pop song tells us what the characters are feeling. Check out Jarmusch's latest masterpiece, Patterson, for one of the most beautiful examples of his delicate touch. So, are we any closer to defining exactly what constitutes indie cinema? Of course not, and rightly so, because in the spirit of independence, it's a movement that refuses to play by any rules. To impose any such rules is to reduce the scope and diversity that indie cinema openly celebrates. I would argue that there is such a thing as independent spirit that imbues these films with a unifying identity. The Coen brothers have maintained this spirit even as their available budgets have grown bigger, while Richard Linklater's School of Rock would never have been made had its director been pressured into arbitrarily keeping it real, and what a tragedy that would have been. One need only watch Steven Soderbergh's hysterically funny experimental satire Schizopolis, a project funded by Universal, to realise that definitively categorising indie cinema as one beast defined by a handy checklist is sheer buffoonery. If this formally daring, narratively challenging, expectation-defying oddity can't be classed as independent just because of where its micro-budget came from, then our independence is being too rigidly governed. My advice is, pay no heed to either the multiplex junkies who tell you you're weird, or the holier-than-thou snobs who will always cite a more obscure bargain-basement title on your own personal favourite. There's a whole world of amazing films out there that many people will never discover. Don't be one of them. Immerse yourself in the wonderful, bold, enlightening universe of indie cinema, whatever that phrase might mean to you. Well, thanks for that, Andy. And, uh, well, you know, I absolutely agree. I'm not... I don't want to undo what you've just said. <laughs> but my inter- my interpretation of indie cinema is sometimes it's a case of if you look at the, any... When they look at genre on whatever service you use to watch films on and it says indie i think oh oh no i'm, I'm gonna have to think a bit through this <laughs> and although I, that's most of the time i, th- I think I'm, o- I'm okay with that sometimes you just think ah, I see someone <laughs> smashing something someone's head against the wall <laughs> but i think we, we well we said before quite a bit on this program we've talked about birdman and whiplash or whatever and uh but Actually, them also winning over Boyhood. I did, this mm. is something that you know because I for for a long time I I had this feeling that Whip. Oh, don't roll your eyes at me, Rachel. <laughs> I had this feeling that the Whiplash should have beat Birdman, and now I mean you know, I mean not only in that year as well there was uh, the Imitation Game, the Theory of Everything, which I absolutely loved as well. I mean, what a strong year that was. That was a strong year. Well done. And <laughs> I, so well done. Well done. Twenty fifteen. <laughs> But then oh, you yeah. turned into 2016, which was less. Sorry, Andy. Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I was going to ask, actually, uh, J.K. Simmons beat Ethan Hawke to the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Do you think that was deserved? Because I know J.K. Simmons gave a hell of a powerful performance in Whiplash, but I think Ethan Hawke's is better. So do I. I didn't realise that he was up for that as well. Mm. Yeah. In that case, yeah, he should have beaten J.K. Simmons, I think. Well over 30-odd programs in, into this now we need to go right back to the first <laughs> one and redo first. it all again so this is what i was talking about earlier this is where you think oh no hang on i got that wrong 
See, well, we, can, we can't even do two years. <laughs> but, it, but the thing is, it's fine for us to go right, we get wrong, and then in this one, you say, oh, yeah, I've changed my mind about that, and that's yeah. fine. That's okay. But if you're making a film, yeah, <laughs> oh, I don't oh. like this actor anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want Patricia Arquette in this anymore. Get <laughs> it's blowing my mind. So, I mean, I, I haven't seen anyone else who would have been cast for any of this. And I always like to find those. Um, I don't, I don't think, would... think Linklater works like that. No, I isn't... think he has no. an idea in his head, and that's kind of who mm. he's getting. Yeah. yeah, he's worked with Ethan Hawke a lot, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah. So Mason Junior um, just it seems or appears to take it all in his stride. You know, it's just his, his nature. Uh, and again, I think which is telling is uh, Samantha and one of the great lines from this. And this, this again, not only do I identify with uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, or Mason Senior's parenting, uh, I definitely uh, do from Olivia's parenting as well, where she says to get in the car and cut the horse poo attitude, <laughs> uh, which is just like yeah, you know. I mean, I've not said those exact words. I've probably thought them in my head, but I might have said something very, very similar. Uh, and again, that's right. But actually, as as they grow older. Uh, they are actually sometimes maybe surprisingly close but because of these situations that they found themselves in um, then you know this is the the one thing they've got is each other in that Mm. I suppose no Uh, absolutely I thought it was really quite believable Uh, I haven't had a brother-sister relationship but I've had a sister-sister relationship and um, I think relationship between siblings there is that kind of I can beat you up but nobody else can touch you. <laughs> nobody else can make you cry. I can, but nobody else can. And I thought the affection that um, they had for the two kids they left behind, who I worried about for the yeah. duration of the film. Yeah. Though <laughs> um, they, she was really worried. Are we ever going to see them again? I mean, they they became their brother and sister, and then all of a sudden they're ripped away from them, and they've left them. Yeah. I thought it was quite realistic that then we never heard anything yeah, about definitely. them. But I wish I could have known because I was very worried about them. Both she and Mason were very compassionate, very caring kids who did really love each other because they were the one constant in, the li- in their lives were, was each other. And the way they ragged on their dad was really good as well. Mm. I quite liked how they teamed up against him a little <laughs> bit. Um, I really liked that. But they really understood each other. And I think that is one thing that, that siblings, you know, siblings that get on, that is something that is really precious and it did come across. One thing that really struck me was um, he didn't seem to have a best friend. I thought boys always had a best friend that they kind of, and girls. I suppose like, they're moving around. Yeah, I guess so. But I still thought there would be somebody that would be more constant. Yeah. But maybe that's the whole point of it, was that there, there was no constant for him particularly. But I felt kind of sad. And occasionally there'd be a boy that he'd be with and I was thinking, ooh, are you a new person? Or are you somebody that's grown up so much that I, I can't even tell anymore? <laughs> and um, so I, I felt kind of sad that there wasn't somebody in his life that he would probably confide in. You know, his dad had Jimmy um, at the beginning and Olivia seemed to have that friend of hers who was around a lot. I think Samantha seemed to have a friend as well that she seemed to be with quite a bit, but I didn't see that that many people for Mason Jr., particularly, which was weird. Yeah, not really. I mean, the the closest relationship outside of his family he had was with his girlfriend later on, wasn't it? Yeah, Um, and maybe that was the problem. Maybe that was why he got so hung up on Sheena was because she was that one constant yeah, and the one person that he spoke to properly because I don't think he really spoke that much because we didn't see any conversations any deep conversations with any other male um, characters but we saw it with her Did those scenes ring true because for me those the scenes where the adults fall out of a bit and they're they're teenagers uh, the scene where they went off to visit the college and they they talked a lot and you know God knows, as a teenager, I blathered a load of pretentious rubbish all the time. <laughs> but it was the one bit of the film where the dialogue felt written to me rather than 
rather than natural. That's really funny because that's the, the two of the things that he talks about um, in that were real conversations that Ela had with Richard Linklater. Ah, really? So it's interesting that those are the two bits that don't feel authentic to you yeah. are actually the most authentic bits. <laughs> maybe it's um, the maybe it's the reproduction. I was maybe it's trying say, to recreate yeah. something that happened for real. I think when you say something that's scripted and it's not your voice, then you become your character. Yeah. But if you're saying something that is something that you feel, how do you manage that with it's a character, but it's also you. Yeah. So I can kind of see I might be a bit stilted on that. I thought he sounded, I thought he came across a little bit like Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. <laughs> there was that element of yeah. trying to be quite clever. Yeah. And, um, but also saying, I'm not being clever, but, and I thought there's a little bit of trying to impress this girl. But that's, for me, the bit where he came across most like his dad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I see what you mean. I, I do wonder if maybe because it was a real conversation that he'd already had, how do you then regurgitate that and make it seem fresh? Yeah, I suppose it's different so, from taking elements of life. Taking actual dialogue from life is, yeah. is a bit more difficult. I mean, there's so many elements of real life in this, isn't there? Like mm. uh, the Black Album, which is the the present that Ethan Hawke's character makes for uh, makes for Mason on his birthday, and that was a real album that he made for his daughter's birthday. Uh, where, as he says in the film, he's, he's put the Beatles back together. He's taken all yeah. the best of their, their solo songs and put them together. And uh, in the film, Marshall Senior's new wife says he's agonised over sequencing it, also they, they flow into each other perfectly. But I've seen the, the track list and the real one he made, and he has no idea how to sequence <laughs> an album. So what I've done is I, I made my own, and oh. it, it's way better. <laughs> I mean, it, for what, it's like a three-disc album, and he opens the second disc with God by John Lennon, and then it goes into listen to what the man said by Paul McCartney. Now that doesn't flow at all. No, what no, you need no. to do is, if you're going to go from a Len to McCartney, and it's going to be listen to what the man said, you start with whatever gets you through the night, <laughs> and that flows into listen to what the man said. And yeah, so basically I fixed it. But what <laughs> definitely makes mine better is that mine doesn't have Muller Kintyre on it. <laughs> Does his have? His has oh, Muller Kintyre on it. No. Yeah, got a soft spot for Muller Kintyre. I would rather put Not the. Uh, I would album. rather put We All Stand Together, the oh. front chorus on the Muller Kintyre. That's a brilliant song. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> bom, bom, bom. <laughs> And so uh, we should perhaps talk a touch more about Patricia Arquette because she did win the Oscar. She did. Uh, supporting actress. Uh, throughout the film, she's astonishing. But I think really for me, it was the last thing we see of Olivia is just this despair of the empty nest. And mm. it's, you know, I mean, that's quite upsetting, isn't it? Yeah, it's very upsetting. And also not just the empty nest syndrome, but sort of that's a big chunk of her life over. Mm. And, I the, did, and the anger. The yeah. anger that was there. She was very angry about it, I think. You know, she she was reflecting on her life, and I think that happens quite a lot when when kids leave the nest. I think there's a lot of reflection, and that's when my parents got divorced. Is when me and my sister both were well. My sister had moved out; I was about to move out, and that's when you start to look and look at what's left, and realise this isn't enough, mm -hmm. or what's going on here. And um, I think that was definitely coming across with her. It's different when you've got your kids to focus on. All of a sudden, they're not going to need you anymore. And what have I got left? Oh, I've got left two divorces, two drunk husbands you know, a picture of a skateboarding thing that my son took that he doesn't even want. And um, and it's that, that speed at which life passes you by. I think it was at that point where I really, it really got me in the heart was just, wow, you know, we've just watched this film and 12 years has passed. And it's almost like 12 years really had passed in yeah. that amount of time. Yeah. It's like, wow, life is so fast. It's so fleeting. And we've just watched Patricia Arquette go from being that age to that age. And 
she's really felt that she's really experienced that and you know I, I really felt it I thought God, I actually feel quite depressed now <laughs> and you know similarly it's like quick I need to go out and you know suck the marrow out of life right now but another bit thought oh my god it's just so fleeting how do we do this how do we slow it down and on, on so many levels it was a real emotional jar I really like that he has the bravery to leave it there as well. Mm-hmm. We don't have a little moment where he comes back and hugs his mum or anything no. and gives her that reassurance. That is where we leave her character. And we know from what we've seen that she will be okay and, and she'll she'll move on and life will change. But that's the moment we're left with of her. And I think as, as Mason grows up, he will realise everything that his mum's done for him more and... Often as you, as you grow older, that that warmth comes back that maybe drifts a little bit for a lot of teenagers and their mothers. So we, we feel that that will probably come in. But I like that that, he, that Richard Linklater had the bravery to leave it after that speech. She, she looks devastated. It cuts away and we never see her again. Uh, that, that speech probably was what won the Oscar. But I think she, she, was, she was really brilliant. The first time I watched it, I missed it completely. I missed the performance completely. I thought, why did she, has she got all this, this fuss? And the second time, the minute I went in, I completely believed her. And I, comp- and I could see she was she was quietly being brilliant. It wasn't a big showy performance. And that speaks a lot about the intricacy of that performance in, in the small things. Uh, and at the end of it this time, I thought, yeah, yeah, she was fabulous. It's almost kind of the polar opposite of what Ethan Hawke does in the film. And they're both brilliant in different ways and it gives you the idea of the whole sort of sphere of influence for these kids, doesn't it? I love that idea of Patricia Arquette being quietly brilliant. Mm. And I think she is in in most of her work over her career. She she is quietly brilliant. She's not a showy performer. She's not something that makes you go, oh my God, look at that, it's really powerful. And I I think she's rather exceptional. And I absolutely agree with her getting the Oscar because I don't... You could so overplay that. Being, you know, in a relationship with an abusive drunk, you could so overplay that. And she really didn't. No. You know, she was when she was sat at the table and her first husband was getting violent and throwing the glass and things, her reaction was so real. It was so authentic. I thought, yeah, you probably would react like that. You would stop screaming and, you know, doing yeah. everything else. You just kept it real. Just masterful, absolutely masterful. It was, it was. And, I mean, as you say there about the, uh, the cutting away at the, exactly the right point there, Andy, it cuts yeah. away to actually, I think, what is probably my favourite scene in the film, uh, to the, the truck driving away. He's got a pickup truck, and um, it's a Toyota, and on the back of it, the letters have been removed, apart from... Yo, <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, yes. That's, that's absolute gene. Okay, so we always like to wonder... What happened next? I mean, let, let, let's let focus first, I think, on Mason Jr. Um, he's there. He's out there. He's just got to, to college. Um, he's experimenting, shall we say. <laughs> Leave it there. <laughs> and um, he he's, looks like he's, you know, he's, he's going to have a wild old time. I mean, does he become uh, a photographer? I don't know, but I feel he's found his people. Mm. The one, his teacher at school said to him, you know, when you go to college, that's when you find your people. Mm-hmm. And that really came true in that last scene for me. I felt like he'd found his people. But, you know, the world's his oyster and he's in this beautiful place with these people who are going to inspire him, people that are different, people that he's never met before, people that are totally out of his scope. And that's when you really do find what you really love. So actually, I think the world really is very open 
to him because he's very creative and that doesn't necessarily mean just photographs. He sees the world in a particular way. Um, his father has drummed into him about using condoms. So I'm thinking he probably won't get somebody oh, pregnant. That scene, that scene. Oh, and actually, here we go. I mean, particularly the, the look on Samantha, the, the oh, Lorelei. Yeah. Oh, I just thought that was just so perfect. <laughs> the awkwardness of that it was just I was doing. I was putting the same faces and cringing and saying, "Please stop, please stop." And she was doing this, just the same, just with the looks on her face. It was incredible. Yeah, it's brilliant, wasn't it? But yeah. I don't think he's going to forget that in a hurry. So um, I don't think he's going to make the same mistakes I think he's emotionally mature enough that he's seen the effect of that and um, I'd just like to think that it, you know I don't want to put any restraints on him I think the world yeah. is oyster I really yeah. do well I think it, it says a lot about the, the sort of scope and flow of this film that I can't say well next he does this or he does that because often the way films are, are given to us you, you struggle to see beyond that part of the of the life that's presented and so you can just say oh they become a photographer at the end or they live happily ever after at the end but because this looks at such a big chunk of life I struggle to to think of any kind of full stop it'll just go and go and go maybe you will become a photographer but maybe you'll go somewhere else from there or more important parts of his life will take over or he'll become a father and even though he's still a photographer the fatherhood might play a bigger part or the photography might interfere with that I think it's it's I can only see the future of, of these characters in terms of the way boyhood is presented and that's a big wide canvas that you just can't condense and that I think is a perfect place to end uh, and end series six yay Woo-hoo. I know how incredible <laughs> how incredible so if you've just discovered us over series six please do go back uh, check out previous podcasts and uh, so thank you thanks to everyone thanks to our producer Johnny Hall thank you to Rachel thanks to Andy um, so when it comes to rating this episode um, I've changed my mind in the last couple of minutes about exactly what we're going to do here I was just going to ask a straight out question but um, after the genial Andy Goulding's uh, poem uh, that we always leave on and uh, well done on that Andy um, you, you're going to hear uh, a piece of music and if the team uh, weren't so keen on it you're going to hear Yellow by Coldplay or um, if uh, if we quite liked it um, you're going to hear The Cedar Room by Doves Life's diversity demands we play a thousand parts as our hourglasses slowly drain of sand and a metaphor we use for this is wearing different masks to help accommodate the tasks at hand. Our life's variety can cause severe anxiety. It's no wonder that our impulse is to hide. But a mask obscures the parts allowing access to our hearts. It encases faces much too deep inside. For masks deny the face that they consume and thus replace, erasing any personal identity. You just become the wrong while lacking any hint of soul, an efficient but unknowable non-entity. We're more than just the parts we play on any given day. So let's put the mask analogy to bed. It would do us all much good if we instead embrace the hood through my magic raincoat metaphor instead. My magic raincoat's something which I've had since I was small and I wear it even when it isn't raining. Its thousand magic hoods help me adopt my different roles. Perhaps this concept needs further explaining. I used to wear my childhood when I was only young. Now I tend to wear my adulthood instead. I usually wear my livelihood to get me through the day, while at night I wrap my knighthood around my head. I wear my brotherhood for those to whom I feel close, and my neighbourhood to chat across the wall. I have been known to tell fibs from beneath a falsehood too, because no one wears a sainthood after all. Not every hood is permanent, I've lost some in my time, but change is part of what makes life so brilliant. 
During puberty one day, I watched my boyhood blow away, though thankfully my manhood's more resilient. I couldn't have been happier to lose my bachelorhood, when my wife detached her spinsterhood as well. And the likelihood of ever needing either hood again is the same as needing snowproof hoods in hell. Whichever head encasement is adjacent to my placement is the one I wear in any given case. For while masks can fit the tasks, I feel a hood does you more good because it doesn't cover up your lovely face. Together we can weather any storm that comes our way, but hiding just reduces our potential. So don your magic raincoat and step out into the world, for life's exciting when it gets torrential. been listening to spoiler hosted by me paul tyler with andy goulding and rachel bennett our theme music was composed by ron butcher if you've enjoyed the show please do tell your friends about us share the links to our show or write us a nice review on itunes if you'd like to contact us you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk find us on twitter or facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hawes and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. All right, all right, we're done. Let's get out of here.